Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you're around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one, no questions asked. That is why I'm offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. Today's episode is sponsored by Families Against Fentanyl. FAF is an organization set on breaking the status quo of failed solutions and to get to the core of the supply chain of deadly fentanyl. Learn more about FAF by visiting familiesagainstfentanyl.org and sign their petition to declare illegal fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Hello, High Truth listeners. I am thrilled to be with you once again for an educational and consultative episode. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. Who needs consultations? Many times, doctors request consultations from specialists on how to treat patients. Cardiologists are the specialists for the heart, orthopedic surgeons for broken bones, and addiction medicine specialists for people with substance use disorders. Today's episode will be different. We will get an inside look of how doctors give advice to other doctors in the treatment of addiction. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hello, Dr. Liv. Thank you so much for your informative podcast. I'm an emergency medicine resident and I am applying for my X waiver. And I was wondering how to get started with prescribing Suboxone. I work at various hospitals and I'm trying to figure out what the best way is for me to go about getting started with this process. Any information that you would have would be super helpful. Thank you again for your podcast. Thank you, Dr. Hunt, for your question and your work on the front lines in the emergency department. To answer your question and much more, I have our nation's top experts from the National Clinical Consultation Center, the NCCC. They are doctors advising doctors. Physicians around the country may know the NCCC as an advice line for post-exposure prophylaxis treatment, treatment after a needle stick and possible HIV exposure. After 30 years in the hospital, I have poked myself accidentally, sadly, a few times with a needle. The decision to treat with antiviral medications after such an exposure can be complicated, and the NCCC has a warm line for physicians to call for advice. That same NCCC has a warm line for clinicians to call about treating substance use disorders. The NCCC is a free and confidential service to clinicians. It is truly an incredible resource, and I am so excited that we have with us today four leaders from NCCC to talk about the National Substance Use Warm Line, 
And you can learn more about the National Clinical Consultation Center and its substance use warmline, along with the bios from our experts in the High Truth show notes. And let's meet our experts today. Brenda Goldhammer, Program Director for NCCC, the National Clinical Consultation Center. Welcome, Brenda. Thank you so much, Renee. We really appreciate you having us today. Great. And Dr. Trevini DeFries. Dr. Trevini DeFries is a consultant with NCCC. She's trained in internal medicine and addiction medicine. Welcome, Dr. DeFries. Thank you so much. And Dr. Mishka Turplin. Dr. Turplin is a consultant with NCCC, trained in OBGYN and addiction medicine. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Welcome. And Dr. Jesse Ristow, consultant for NCCC, trained in internal medicine and addiction medicine. Thank you so much for having us. Brenda Goldhammer, let's start with you. You are the program director for this amazing service, the National Clinical Consultation Center. Tell us about the NCCC, how it came about, and what services are available. Of course. Thank you so much. Um, So the NCCC, um, we are a federally funded program that is funded by the Health Resources and Services Administration's HIV AIDS Bureau, as well as funding from the Bureau of Primary Healthcare and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. We're based out of the University of California at San Francisco and located in San Francisco General Hospital. We started over 30 years ago by Dr. Ron Goldschmidt. He is a family physician working out of San Francisco General, and he started the program ultimately in response to the HIV epidemic. He believed that all patients should have access to state-of-the-art, compassionate treatment, no matter where they access care. He wanted to extend the reach of the clinical experts based out of San Francisco General to all clinicians nationally by offering a free clinical consultation service that was easily accessible by telephone. And this was ultimately how our flagship service, the HIV Warmline, was launched. The HIV Warmline offers healthcare providers nationally free clinical consultation on HIV testing and management. Over the years, we've added new teleconsultation services in response to the HIV epidemic, including our perinatal HIV hotline, which is a 24-7 consultation service for healthcare providers with questions about the management of their patients who are pregnant or wanting to become pregnant, who are at risk of or are living with HIV. We also have a post-exposure management service for healthcare professionals who have questions about managing HIV um, exposures or and or hepatitis exposures in both the occupational and non-occupational settings. More recently, we've launched our pre-exposure prophylaxis consultation service in 2014, shortly after Travada was first approved as a once-a-day regimen to prevent HIV. And in 2015, we launched our hepatitis C warm line for clinicians with questions on screening as well as the management of hepatitis C. And lastly, in 2016, we started our substance use form line in response to the growing opioid epidemic and the overdoses that were happening in the United States. That's great. So who calls you guys? Who calls the NCCC? Are they doctors, nurses, pharmacists? Uh, And how often do you get calls? How busy are you? Uh, We are very busy. We we average about uh, eight to 9,000 calls a year. Um, the range of our callers that use our services spans from early career professionals to seasoned experts that may just want to run a case by us because they think of us as a trusted colleague. 
Um, with a lot of healthcare providers leaving the field these days, along with hospital closures across the United States, access to specialists can be more difficult. So the need for a program like ours has really expanded. Um, and clinicians in rural settings, I think, find us especially useful where they may not have access to specialists in their communities. Um, our program is staffed by advanced practice nurses, clinical pharmacists, and specialist and subspecialist physicians. Um, any healthcare provider in the United States can call us for free. Um, over the years, we've expanded our team to clinicians that work across the United States, which has really enriched our program more. Our team works part-time for us and part-time in their own clinical practices, so they really can bring their real patient experiences to the guidance they provide that is based on the most recent federal guidelines and the most up-to-date science. That's amazing. And as busy as you are, do you want more business? Always. <laughs> um, you know, I think we would love to, um, you know, uh, I was going to talk a little bit about our calls, um, but I think before I go there, um, you know, I think the message we would love to just um, leave here today is just that we are um, a resource that's available to healthcare providers nationally. We really encourage um, people to call us. Um, we also have um, an online consultation uh, portal through our website. If you want to submit cases online, uh, we can be found at www.nccc.ucsf.edu. Um, and so we encourage you to visit our website as well, where we have uh, a lot more resources. And um, certainly we love, um, we, we are federally funded, but certainly we also survive by donations from those in the community. Um, and donations can be um, uh, can be uh, given to us through our website. That's great. Brenda, you've been with the NCCC for many years, and you must be very proud of how it has expanded services over the years. And I thank you for your leadership. It's very much appreciated and important service. And now let's transition to Dr. Jesse Ristau, a physician consultant, internal medicine. Um, Dr. Ristau, um, Dr. Andrea Hunt is an emergency medicine resident. She's applying for an X waiver and wants to know how to get started, especially as she works at different emergency departments. That's a great question from Dr. Hunt. So we get this kind of question a lot. You know, as Brenda mentioned, our callers run the gamut from folks that this is maybe their first time prescribing buprenorphine or sometimes it's it's their, uh, they've had a lot of experience. So the first thing that I'd say to the, the ER provider is the most important thing is that you can do it. And this is a really important medication to start in the emergency department. There's evidence that starting medications for opioid use disorder, MOUD, improve outcomes, including uh, reducing mortality, increasing rates of primary care follow-up, and reducing length of stay for patients that are admitted to the hospital. These medications for opioid use disorder, of course, include extended-release naltrexone, uh, extended-release buprenorphine and buprenorphine sublingual, and then uh, methadone. And in the emergency department, the ones that we recommend and we see most frequently, of course, because uh, uh, for, for what people are coming in for, are buprenorphine or methadone. Um, so really important that, that uh, providers get that experience of starting that in the emergency department, and it's a really important service. Um, the other question that you had kind of alluded to as part of that is what if somebody's 
uh, is working at a lot of different emergency departments and maybe they're working in different cities or they're working within different systems. Um, again, the most important thing is that the medication is started for the patient while they're there in the hospital uh, or in the emergency department because then they can really get that extensive wraparound care um, that can be that can uh, have increased monitoring and increased support while patients are started on, on either of those medications. And then in terms of follow-up, that can obviously look really different based on where the patient, the patient is, where the provider is. Um, and so when providers are thinking about, okay, how do I start this? We're gonna go into that in a moment. But once I get the patient on this medication, where do they go after they leave the emergency department? How do they continue getting that prescription? There's a lot of different places that patients can get these medications. If it's methadone, the patient needs to follow up in an opioid treatment program because that's the only place that they can be administered or um, uh, dispensed methadone. Buprenorphine, however, can be prescribed uh, in either a primary care setting with anyone who is ex-wavered, a specialty addiction medicine clinic, which may be separate or embedded within primary care, or some opioid treatment programs, uh, methadone clinics will also prescribe or also administer prescribed buprenorphine. If you're in an area where you're not quite sure where those are, there's a great website I'll direct you to. It's a PCSS website, which stands for Providers Clinical Support System, where there's a specific provider tracking uh, and location um, service where you can put in your zip code and up pops all these different options in your area that you can contact or refer the patient to directly for those different uh, treatment options. Um, PCSS is a SAMHSA website. SAMHSA, of course, is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services website. Um, so it's a, a national, uh, national database. Um, and then before we go into the next part of actually how do we start this, the other piece I wanted to note is that X waiver. So people sometimes ask us too, do we still need the X waiver? I heard that they did away with it. Um, well, about a year ago, the guidelines changed. Whereas before, a provider, if they were an MD or a DO, would need about eight hours of in-person or, or, or virtual uh, training in order to get the X waiver, and then NPs or PAs would need about 24 hours. That's no longer the case. Now, any provider with a DEA license can get an X waiver in under 10 minutes by just uh, submitting their information through the online portal on the SAMHSA website to get their X waiver. And then you can provide uh, buprenorphine for up to 30 patients at a time. It uh, lasts forever, and it's free. So we recommend that folks do that. And then for any time that you have questions, you can always call us on the warm line. Um, and for just general information and more support around how to start buprenorphine, there's also different educational modules on the PCSS website. Great. And I'm definitely behind the movement of Xing the X waiver. We should be able to treat diabetes by any doctor. We should be able to treat substance use disorder without any of these uh, barriers and those resources are important. So even if you don't know where to send patients, if you're going to different hospitals, you can refer them for the patient themselves to reach these resources. Is that what you mean? Absolutely. All right. So let's say a patient comes to the emergency department after an overdose and they're saved with naloxone. I had one just the other night. Um, many patients are in denial that they almost died. What is the best approach in talking to patients about getting treatment? Yeah, that's a great question. So big picture, um, 
uh, oftentimes when I hear patients describe their experiences after being having a, a opioid overdose reversal, it can be really disorienting. A patient can be not quite sure why they're in the emergency department, as you noted, because they were kind of having their life and then all of a sudden they woke up in the emergency department. So the first thing I think about is set and setting. Where is the patient, how ready is the patient to have that conversation? First of all, are they, are they awake enough? You know, are they mentating well? Or do they have the capacity to have the discussion about what their different options are for medications? If they're, say, too sedated or something else is happening, I might wait a little bit later to have that conversation. But for patients that are awake and alert and are ready to talk about the options, the language I use is this. You know, you're here in the emergency department. You're safe. What we believe happened is that you were using some type of opioid and you had an overdose. You actually died. And in order to come back and be brought back, we use Narcan or Naloxone, which is a medication that reverses opioid overdoses. And so we're so glad that you're here. Now that you're here, we're wondering how can we support you uh, and how can we keep you safe from having another opioid overdose? Can I offer you some different options for starting medications for a problematic relationship to opioids? So I get a sense of like what they're going for, what they're hoping for. It also gives uh, them an opportunity to say, wait, what? I wasn't using opioids. I was using methamphetamine. I wasn't trying to use opioids at all. Because uh, actually now with the current state of things, there's a lot of fentanyl that's contaminated in the methamphetamine supply. So it's not uncommon where a patient will come in for an opioid overdose when actually they have a methamphetamine or a stimulant use disorder and they don't have an opioid use disorder. So that's the group we need to make sure that we evaluate for because um, the buprenorphine or the methadone is not going to help for a, a stimulant use disorder. That's somebody we think about prescribing Narcan for and talking about safe use. But for the person that says, yes, you know, I, um, I have a problematic relationship to opioids, either I'm looking to start treatment now or, ooh, I'm not quite sure, but sure, tell me about the options. This is the way I lay it out. You know, the two most common medications we use for this are either methadone or buprenorphine. Methadone, we can start now um, and we can increase a little bit uh, today as long as you're here in the hospital in the emergency department. And then when you leave the hospital, you'll need to keep following up with the methadone or an opioid treatment program so we can continue to increasing the dose to get you on a stable dose. That's one way I say it. Then the other option is to say, the other option is buprenorphine. Buprenorphine is a medication that we can give to you now and increase really quickly while you're here in the emergency department. Once you leave the hospital or leave the emergency department, we'll talk about other places that you can follow up for that. But that might also look like going to a clinic in order to, to get a prescription from your, from your doctor there. Um, some people have heard about buprenorphine or methadone. Have you heard of either one of those? Uh, and that gives a, the, uh, the patient the opportunity to say, oh, yeah, I've tried methadone. I want that. Or, oh, I've tried buprenorphine. And gosh, I had precipitated withdrawal, so I don't want that at all. Um, and so if, if that's the, the scenario, then you get to provide a patient, you know, shared decision making in terms of what their goals are. And the thing to note here is that if a patient is coming in in the scenario that you highlighted where they've already gotten Narcan or Naloxone, what that means is that the opioids that were on that person's mu opioid receptors, they've already been displaced by the, the naloxone, which means that if you give them buprenorphine, the only thing that they're going to feel is they're going to feel better. 
they're not going to have precipitated withdrawal because those other opioids have already left the system. So if they're worried about a prior experience of precipitated withdrawal, but they're open to starting buprenorphine again, you can absolutely do that in that setting. And there's some great resources with the bridge program where you can actually look online for the bridge resources and they have a protocol or basically, you know, after the patient has gotten naloxone in the emergency department, they can get eight milligrams of buprenorphine sublingual an hour later, if they're still feeling, uh, if they're feeling well, not sedated, you can give them another eight. And in that way, you get up to the treatment dose of 16 milligrams within two hours of the patient being in the emergency department. So that's an overview of how I talk with the patient about the different options, some hiccups that might come up or questions from the patients about what, which option is the best, um, and then how I might start uh, either of those medications in the emergency department. So um, that's great resources, and we'll make sure to post them um, in this uh, recording. But uh, to clarify, microdosing, that's not after an overdose and a naloxone reversing. Is that correct? Great question. Yes. So this term microdosing, what that means is that typically the person is continued on whatever long-acting opioid they're already on, whether that's methadone, street purchase fentanyl, other opioids, and then we slowly increase the amount of buprenorphine over time. So the first day, maybe we give just this tiny, tiny little bit, and then we increase it over time. That's a little bit of a different scenario than this that we're in right now. We do the microdosing uh, when patients are already on these other opioids in order to avoid precipitated withdrawal in that scenario. So in that scenario, I've had patients who are on um, methadone, but they want to switch to Suboxone, but traditionally they say don't use, don't start Suboxone for a week. So is that where microdosing can um, help? Yeah, that's a great, another great common question we get is what do we do if the patient's on methadone and they want to switch to buprenorphine? First thing is always asking why, you know, it, it is a little bit of a process to do this. So just making sure that it's the right option for the patient. Um, and then next, yes, the, the general protocol of microdosing uh, is that say the patient's on for example, 100 or 120 or 150 milligrams of methadone, typically that person is continued on that same dose every day. And then the first day of starting the buprenorphine, depending on your system, some systems have access to the buprenorphine patch, which is FDA approved for pain, but not opioid use disorder. So you can use it in the hospital, but it's a little bit trickier in the outpatient setting. And then maybe the next day or the day after, you might start the uh, sublingual formulation of the buprenorphine, a half milligram twice a day, uh, and then the next day, one milligram twice a day, next day, two milligrams twice a day, and you continue basically doubling the dose until you get to the full dose of 16 milligrams or eight milligrams twice a day, uh, and then that's around the time when you stop the methadone. So that's typically how we, how we do that process. And is that kind of information on your website, or is this something that doctors need to call to get uh, help in dosing? Great question. So that information is also on the, the California Bridge website that I had mentioned. They have some great protocols that list that out pretty clearly. Um, and that's something that we help uh, talk, uh, talk providers through quite frequently on our warm line. Thank you so much. That's so important. Dr. Rista, what a great resource is. Treating substance disorder is new to many physicians and having your advice and just a phone call away is an incredible asset. And now let's go to Dr. Mishka Turplin. He is a physician consultant, OBGYN physician, and addiction medicine specialist. Um, Dr. Turplin, how is medical, um, how is medication for opiate use disorder, MOUD, different during pregnancy in terms of starting a pregnant woman on MOUD or changing medication for women on treatment who become pregnant? 
Yeah, well, thank you. Thanks for uh, you know spotlighting um, uh, the 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 end. Um, triple C up uh, here today. Uh, so pregnancy in general, the answer is there's not a huge difference between treating a, the chronic condition of addiction in pregnancy versus treating it outside of pregnancy. I think the main sort of principles of prenatal care apply in addiction as in other chronic disease states, which is healthy mother equals healthy baby. Treating chronic disease and pregnancy improves birth outcomes. That's true of diabetes, asthma, hypertension, and addiction. Now, there are some small differences. We have three medications that we use to treat opioid use disorder in general, methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone. Naltrexone is not recommended for use in pregnancy, not because there's attributable and measurable harm, it just hasn't been sufficiently studied. There's currently an ongoing randomized trial of buprenorphine versus naltrexone in pregnancy that in several years will have some data that will, I think, be support the safety of its use in pregnancy and hopefully a little bit about the effectiveness as well. But so the two primary medications are methadone or buprenorphine can be started at any time in pregnancy. Um, that includes like during the birthing hospitalization and definitely should be started for people who, you know, uh, meet criteria for a use disorder and are interested in medication. So what about um, the unborn uh, child? How if women are getting drugs, um, even legal drugs, medications, opioids, such as methadone and um, Suboxone, what will happen in terms of neonatal abstinence syndrome? Uh, well, that's a great question. And really, like, just sort of flipping the script a little bit from the perspective of the fetus, right? The fetus actually does not know if the opioid it's being exposed to is prescribed, not prescribed, legal, illegal, being used as directed or misused. So this sort of classification of the sort of expectation of harm that we apply is really applying those sort of social legal, you know, distinctions um, in, in a way that doesn't really make sense. So neonatal abstinence syndrome is withdrawal at birth, you know, following in uterine like opioid exposure. But it's more than just the opioid. Not every infant who is in utero exposed develops withdrawal. And there's other sort of co-actors um, to it. Um, and the withdrawal can happen you know, from opioids prescribed you know, for chronic pain for in, among people who don't have an opioid use disorder. You know, withdrawal can happen for people with untreated opioid use disorder, and withdrawal can happen for people whose opioid use disorder is being treated with either methadone or buprenorphine. But as I said, it's more than the opioid. There are other in utero like exposures that increase the likelihood as well as the severity of withdrawal. Other medications, SSRIs, benzodiazepines, gabapentin, other use, like, you know, in particular tobacco. And there's almost a dose-dependent relationship between number of cigarettes and severity of, and duration of withdrawal. And there's also like the postpartum care environment. We know that infants that are allowed to room in with their mothers, where there's skin-to-skin -skin contact, where breastfeeding is supported, where attachment is supported, withdrawal is less and of less duration and less severity. 
And finally, there's been recent research that's identified sort of methylation um, of the mu opioid receptor in certain infants. Um, so an epigenetic phenomenon that really probably explains who gets and who doesn't get neonatal abstinence syndrome the most. So the way I think about it is that opioids are a necessary but an insufficient cause of withdrawal. And that for people who are receiving medications for opioid use disorder in pregnancy, we should really think of withdrawal as being, you know, really a side effect of the medication. And there's no long-term outcome in terms of neurocognitive development that's associated with either opioid exposure and certainly with, with neonatal withdrawal. Interesting. And one of the classic teaching is that Suboxone, because it has uh, uh, Narcan in it, Naloxone in it, shouldn't be used in pregnancy, that you should just, the one change that happens during pregnancy is to use pure buprenorphine instead of Suboxone. Is that still the current yeah, teaching? Yes, so that's older, um, that certainly still exists in some of the guidance documents because they take probably longest um, to be changed. Um, and that's really a historical remnant. That's not because there was harm with the combination product with the buprenorphine plus naloxone, but that what was studied was the mono product, was the buprenorphine alone. So that's the reason why it's in there, not because of evidence of harm, just lack of evidence historically. More recently, um, there are, there's a systematic review that compares you know, the combination product to the mono product showing absolutely no difference. I would say most people today who are, you know, sort of somewhat specialized in this space are initiating and or maintaining and continuing people on the combination product. For me, the hardest thing always um, <clears throat> in the olden days when we used to just use the mono product was that, you know, you start somebody on the mono product and then you have to switch them to the combination product postpartum. That postpartum period is the time of increased vulnerabilities to, you know, lack of adherence to care, to loss of insurance coverage, to lack of contact with the healthcare system for the postpartum person, you know, and to overdose and um, return to use overdose and overdose death. And so you're taking somebody who's been stable during pregnancy, and in the most vulnerable period, we would be historically switched the medication. And when you have somebody who's stable and you change the medication, the best you can hope for is the same. And there is, you can't make an asymptomatic person better, but you can make them worse. And that's always what gave me pause. I think today, most people should feel comfortable, should be supported by the evidence of initiating and continuing the combination product during pregnancy and thereafter. That's important to know. And it, it sounds complicated. Is this something that every OBGYN who's providing prenatal care can manage in their own practice, um, maybe with your assistance? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, there's no question that OBGYNs can do more in this space. The proportion of OBGYNs who are buprenorphine wavered, you know, 10 years ago was 0.8%, and um, you know, recently is like somewhere less than 2%. So there's been an increase, but it's grossly insufficient. Um, so there's we can do more. Just like I think, and everybody has their own threshold in primary care and in, in obstetric and gynecology practice, right? People are, some people are comfortable writing one, you know, antihypertensive. I think everybody should be comfortable with one. Sometimes, you know, they, when you add a second, maybe when you need a third, oh, that's a time to ask for, 
you know, some help. Same thing with other, you know, behavioral health medications, antidepressants, things like that. So I think buprenorphine should be part of the general armamentarium of actually all providers, in particular those that work, you know, in primary care and primary care-like settings. Um, but there will be without doubt questions and patients and points in time where the care gets too complex perhaps for that individual and that's precisely what um, we serve as a resource for on the warm line that's great so you take all sorts of calls not just from um pregnant uh women questions right Yes, yes, indeed. So some patients can be difficult to treat and not compliant. So what is the advice to a physician who calls about a patient that is still using drugs despite treatment and the doctor wants to know about their liability in discharging the patient from the practice? Yeah, that's, this is not an uncommon call. And oftentimes there's different flavors, I guess I'll say, of, of, of um, adherence and adherence related issues. But a common one kind of relates to drug testing, right? So the question is, I'm taking care of somebody, I'm prescribing the buprenorphine, but their drug test, you know, is periodically or keeps returning positive. And I think the first thing is like positive for what? So if it's positive for an opioid, if, some, if we're treating opioid use disorder, someone's continuing to use an opioid, that means our treatment at that moment in time is, is failing the patient and is insufficient. So we need to reevaluate the dose, the frequency of dose, the level of care, and all those sorts of things. And that's different than somebody whose you know, um, drug test is positive for a non-opioid. Right? They're under treatment for OUD, not, let's say, for cannabis use or use disorder or stimulant use or use disorder. So to me, that marks like the first part of the sort of decision tree. What, you know, what, is, what is the continued positive for? <clears throat> the second is um, you know, really getting a sense if, for the latter, for people who are using something else in the context of OUD treatment. Really you know, asking the caller to, you know, to think about uh, and to assess what are the patient's goals, right? Our goal might be abstinence, but that might not be what the patient's goals are. And how do you find that, you know, common ground? And sometimes it's suggesting, you know, using, you know, behavioral uh, tools, you know, and having, asking the provider to ask the patient things like, how do you think your treatment is going right now? Or what, what does recovery mean to you? And sometimes the patient will say, it's not going that well. And then it's like, great, I'm glad you heard that because I don't feel like it's going that well either. And suddenly we have common ground rather than me holding up a positive drug test and that really you know, literally pushes you know, the patient away. And um, then the third thing sometimes in, in these conversations is reflecting back to the caller what they're doing well, right? Maybe the patient's still using, but they're coming and seeing you, right? They might still be using an opioid, but they're coming to clinic and they're alive. You know, the fact that they might not have overdosed yet on, you know, on the, you know, contaminated heroin that they're using is because they're still taking their buprenorphine. And that's huge. That might not be where you want them to be. That might probably not where they want to be either, but it's a starting point. So reflecting back to the caller, what's, what's working, that you've established an alliance, they trust you, they're coming back, that's good. And then the final piece is this liability, and I put it in quotation marks, not to minimize it, um, but to sort of like reframe it. Um, because I think we sometimes overstate what could be the concerns around liability and actually minimize 
like what we do in practice, in particular around medical documentation. So to me, it's less that you're you're doing something, you know, wrong, but more important is that you have clear thinking as a provider, that your decision making, somebody else can follow it and somebody else can follow it in, you know, in the medical documentation. So I try and stress that, you know, regardless of what, you know, what's happening with the drug test or, you know, the missed appointments or whatever, that your thinking be clear and able to be followed in the medical documentation. And that's the most protective, actually, from um, that for that concern of liability. Those are great tips. Thank you, Dr. Duprine. Um, pregnancy means considering many medications that patients are on in terms of risk and benefit, and it's important to know that there are safe options for pregnant women with opiate use disorder, and treatment should continue during pregnancy and postpartum. And now let's hear from Dr. Trevini DeFries, physician consultant. Uh, specialist in internal medicine, addiction medicine. Dr. DeFries, MAT, medication-assisted treatment, most people associated it just for opioids, but there is MAT for other drugs, including alcohol. What are common questions you receive from physicians about alcohol use disorder and withdrawal management? Thank you for that question and for pivoting us to some of the non-opioid questions that we get because alcohol is so common. It's probably the most available drug that we have and the most commonly used one. Um, and it comes up all the time when callers um, want to ask for advice and when they're taking care of patients. So you mentioned MAT, medication-assisted treatment, and I really think the medications, you know, they can be the treatment. Um, and we don't always see the medications as treatment for something like alcohol use disorder. So we can reframe and think, you know, medications for addiction treatment, and then think about alcohol use disorder or AUD as having an option, um, a medication option for its treatment. And that is something very rarely done by clinicians and something we can help them with on the warm line. Um, you know, the, a large study um, across the U.S. That called the National Survey on Drug Use and Health in 2019, looking back several years, really confirmed this cascade of care that we have when it comes to alcohol use disorder. So 80% of people who met criteria for an alcohol use disorder, they had been seen in healthcare in the last year, and only one in 10 of them had really been counseled about alcohol use and only 6% of people with alcohol use disorder, and this is millions and millions of people, have received any form of treatment, and only about 1.6% receive any medication for treatment of alcohol use disorder. So we just have such a massive treatment gap in our country when it comes to treatment of alcohol use disorder with medications, and a long way to go. And actually, these medications are not all that hard to use compared to a lot of the treatments that we use in medicine. So something that I love to talk people through over the phone when they call. Um, the medications for alcohol use disorder um, have actually been around for a long time. And I'm happy to talk through more about what they're like, what they are, and, and how people can use them. So yeah, tell us there are uh, different options for for medications, and not and you're not saying that everybody who has alcohol use disorder needs medicines, but there's a select group that would benefit from it. That's a really great point. You know, historically, I, I told you already that 
people in the United States with alcohol, unhealthy alcohol use in their lives rarely receive treatment. Majority of intervention that people have had is what's called a brief intervention or some kind of like brief counseling intervention that they've had with their clinician. And I remember being taught this too. It's like, if you have a patient and they have a problem with alcohol, like make sure you talk to them when they're in the hospital or in the ER and tell them that their drinking is, is going to kill them. Um, and that'll really turn them around. And, you know, this idea of the brief intervention being effective for all people with alcohol use disorder actually is not borne out in the evidence. So a brief intervention like that is something that has been shown to be effective to reduce people's drinking if they have a mild alcohol use disorder. But for people with a more moderate to severe alcohol use disorder, it is not effective at changing their drinking. And so they really should be offered a medication and then also a psychosocial intervention. And, and there are many of those as well. And some of the options that are available to for medication treatment? So there's three medications that have been FDA approved for quite some time for alcohol use disorder. And those include naltrexone, acamprosate, and disulfiram. And then there's a number of medications that we as addiction clinicians and, and a lot of clinicians use commonly that are not actually FDA approved, but we're using off-label for alcohol use disorder. And I'd say the two most common ones are topiramate, and gabapentin. And then there's a group of a lot of other medications that have been studied for alcohol use disorder and are sometimes used. Um, but when I talk to people about medications, I, I think about what are sort of the first line. And the first line is usually naltrexone, which is a opioid antagonist medication that can decrease the cravings for somebody to drink. And it's a really easy one to use in many ways because it can be used for people that have a goal of stopping drinking completely, like abstinence, or a goal of reducing their drinking. Um, and it's also safe to use when people are drinking alcohol. The other medication that interestingly and more recently is considered first line is topiramine. And the VA and the Department of Defense in their guidelines about substance use management just recently, a couple of months ago, um, upgraded topiramate to be a first-line medication for alcohol use disorder because of many promising studies out there. And so just flagging that, that that's maybe something we all could be using a little bit more. Um, and then medications like acamprosate um, have uh, many studies that have been done, and we can talk people through the pros and cons of acamprosate and medications also like abapentin, which we use really commonly. It's interesting. So again, every time I learn something new, I've been starting patients on naltrexone from the emergency department and using gabapentin to help withdrawal symptoms, but I haven't used um, the other options. Um, is the dosing the same? Naltrexone's easy because it's only 50 milligrams once a day. Naltrexone's easy. The dosing is easy, right? You can start at 50 milligrams as a standard dose, or you can tell people to take half of a pill, which is 25 milligrams for the first week, just to avoid any chance of headache or GI upset. Um, but thinking about the medications for alcohol use disorder as a whole, I mean, they all have very different mechanisms of action, but they do have a lot of common features, which are that they're very safe. Um, they're pretty easy to use. All of them, really, with the exception of topiramate and maybe gabapentin, don't really need much titrating. Like naltrexone, you can start and stop it. Topiramate, you do need to 
titrate up over a couple of weeks and then taper down if you're going to stop. Um, the medications also can be combined with each other and all of them are safe to use while somebody is drinking with the exception of disulfiram. That's great. So yeah, really, I have, you know, oh, I've already tried naltrexone. I have the patients and, and these patients are there in primary care settings. We just don't really ask people so much about their alcohol use. We don't, we don't find it to, to help. So having you as a resource, I think is so important. Um, the NCCC receives calls from various medical specialists, not just the emergency department, primary care, OBGYNs, and also from different parts of the country. So can you tell us how treatment and advice is different in various settings? I think it's such a privilege to be a clinician consulted with the NCCC and to hear about the different um, treatment landscapes that are out there across the U.S. I was previously um, a clinician uh, in the Navajo Nation in a rural area, and I really identify with so many of our callers that are practicing in places where they're working really independently with a really wide scope of practice and without specialists to support them. And they really rely on people like us to be able to reach out and ask a question and not just ask a question, but actually ask it in real time. You know, like we often will get back to people um, right away or within a couple of hours. And you don't have to necessarily save up your cases and discuss them weeks later with a specialist. So um, it's, it's really amazing to work with just incredible clinicians out there that are taking care of the patients that need it the most. And, um, and I'd say that we, are, we become familiar with um, tribal areas, with um, rural areas where medications like methadone are really not an option for a lot of people with opioid use disorder. Um, we become familiar with people who are practicing in a place where discharging to an inpatient detoxification facility, for example, is just not an option. Um, so we can help talk people through that and what to do with something like managing alcohol withdrawal, if safe, in the outpatient setting. So there's really a variety of constraints that people face when they're practicing outside of well-resourced urban areas, and, and that's something that we learn a lot about on the warm line. That's a point that you made, that during the pandemic, people had withdrawal from um, alcohol, couldn't go somewhere while they were isolating, and you help um, treat withdrawal at home. Yeah, we can talk that through with somebody about what are the safe uh, ways to think about withdrawal management. And I think a lot of times as consultants, we are helping clinicians to um, gather a history, you know, think about what questions to actually go back and ask the patient. And I think a lot of times I'll say, here's the next steps, here's some of the next things you can ask and call us back once you have that information and we can give further guidance. That's important. And I think it's it was great to hear that you answer in fairly real time, right? So you could have a patient, you know, wait in your waiting room or in the hospital um, and and kind of ask this call, get on the line. Do Are people on hold for a while to, to, what's your average hold time on calling a line? 
Brenda can probably tell us more about that, but we are available. We are available during the week, during business hours. Um, so that's when we take calls. And as Brenda mentioned earlier, we also get um, questions submitted via the electronic portal. Um, and we can also email back with responses. That's great. Thank you so much, Dr. DeFries. I see how you put physicians from across the country in different settings at ease with your advice and expertise. What's the most common call that you get uh, on the NCCC? Some of the questions that you asked us today were a lot of, I think, the, some of the common calls that we get. Um, another call that's somewhat in the framework of what we've talked about is, what about buprenorphine for chronic pain? Um, and while we're an addiction line, we're not a pain line, this is relevant, especially for us, A, because not everybody's as comfortable for uh, uh, prescribing or managing buprenorphine for chronic pain, for which there's formulations like the patch and the buckle formulation. And also, it's within our purview when we talk about it uh, for the reason why some folks might want to do buprenorphine as opposed to another opioid agonist for pain if the patient has another substance use disorder. So say a patient has alcohol use disorder or they have a stimulant use disorder and you're thinking about how to manage chronic pain or the patient's already on an opioid and their urine toxicology result is consistently showing cocaine, what are the options there? Oftentimes we think about switching from say a opioid agonist like hydromorphone, hydrocodone to something like buprenorphine which has a better, better safety profile. Um, and so that's a, an example of another type of question that we get with our warm Line. That's a great question. It reminds me, I had a patient like that the other day. She was here for Comic-Con, and of course, she forgot all her chronic pain medicines at home, like 400 milligrams of morphine and um, I don't know, a whole a high dose of oxycodone, and, and she asked me to give her a week's worth of medicine, so she forgot them in New York, and she's now in San Diego, and I didn't feel comfortable doing that, but she was very anxious, clearly in withdrawal, and wondering, you know, I could give you an option of Suboxone, at least, to get you through that. Would that make sense? The only thing to think about with that, right, because so when you say Suboxone, that's the sublingual formulation of the buprenorphine with the buprenorphine plus the naloxone. So that Suboxone is the brand name of that sublingual combination formulation. The only thing to think about with that is that the buprenorphine sublingual is a, is a much stronger medication than most opioid agonists for pain. So for example, oxycodone 5 is like 1.5 MME, so that's like 7.5 MME, or um, uh, hydromorphone 10 is like 10 MME, versus buprenorphine, uh, uh, the you know FDA has kind of changed a little bit of like what, what the exact MME is, but it's probably somewhere within the 20 to 30 um, MMEs or uh, morphine milligram equivalents per one milligram of sublingual buprenorphine. So say you have a patient on 10 milligrams of Norco or hydromorphone Tylenol three times a day. Well, their tolerance is something like 10 MME. So if you give them like two milligrams, five milligrams, eight milligrams of buprenorphine, that's just going to be way too much buprenorphine for them and might cause sedation. Again, because buprenorphine is a partial agonist, it won't cause overdose unless used with, say, typically other substances like alcohol or benzodiazepines. It could be just too much medication. So that's why we think about the other formulations like the buprenorphine patch or the Belbuca, which are first line for pain when we're thinking about um, buprenorphine formulations. There are some patients, however, that are on really high doses of other opioids, kind of similar to your patient, where you might consider the sublingual, but I would do it at much lower doses. So like one milligram sublingual, you know, TID or two milligrams BID, um, depending on what the kind of rough morphine mill equivalents are. What, what do you think, Mishka or Chabrini? Any other thoughts or things to add there? I actually think our most common question that's asked is probably about complex buprenorphine inductions. And 
really and maybe increasingly about these low dose gradual induction strategies. Because it's more it's more complicated and it's kind of a new thing of how do we do this? Yeah, it definitely takes people off of the script that they learned during their X waiver training. So during, you know, when people are starting out to prescribe buprenorphine, it's so feels so good to have an algorithm and um, and, a, and an approach. And then when you get out into the real world and start prescribing buprenorphine, these situations come up that are complicated and actually require really individualized plans. Very true. That's why I don't want the, after taking eight hour training, I took that course, it took me nine hours and I had more questions than when I started with. And uh, I should have called you guys. Um, so there are many patients have mixed addiction alcohol and opioids and methamphetamine and cannabis. I'm sure you've seen that. So what's the approach here? So it, 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 true, right? It's um, we have the DSM that divides up use disorder by um, substance, yet almost all of you know the, 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 the criteria are identical across substances. And it's rare to find somebody who uses an only you know one substance. It can actually be hard to differentiate up front. Is it use, misuse, or use disorder for all of the all, you know for, for, for whatever the you know collection of substances is. My approach is really treat what you can and see what's left over. And so if somebody meets criteria for an opioid use disorder or an alcohol use disorder, where we have like medications with a like well-established evidence based of both of safety and effectiveness, start with that. Stabilize what you can and then see what's left over. And then as time goes on, you will be able to see whether or not is that, you know, the, you know, the cannabinoid metabolites that are in the urine, is that because they have a cannabis use disorder or is, or, you know, or something else. But up front in the, when you're first seeing somebody, you can't make really those clear assessments. So my approach and what we counsel, what I counsel is like treat what you can and sort of, and then deal with what's left over as it emerges over time. And I'm sure you use shared decision-making, asking the patient, what do you want to work on first? Let's do one at a time. Yeah. And, and, and then knowing what they, you know, what their history was, what have they been treated for before? What do they feel is like the primary thing that's interfering most with their life at that moment in time? All of those are essential parts of the equation. Right. And you guys all advise um, clinicians. We're working in a you know, various medical settings. Is there situations where it's it's too much for a primary care setting um, and you need to refer to a methadone clinic or an opioid treatment program? Yeah, certainly. So, you know, as we mentioned before, methadone can only be administered uh, in an opioid treatment program. So, say in my primary care or addiction specialty clinics, I can never prescribe methadone for the treatment of opioid use disorder. Um, there are some folks who have um, really complex lives and experiences and where even for buprenorphine, it might be hard for them um, to get it consistently either because they lose it or, or for whatever other reasons. Um, and so in those scenarios, we recommend really partnering A, with you if, if you have any local pharmacies. There's a local pharmacy in San Francisco, for example, that will do directly observed treatment for buprenorphine. Some cities have that. Um, but in other areas, methadone clinics will also do buprenorphine and they can do also a direct administration and, and further and closer support. So those are scenarios in which um, referring to an opioid treatment program for opioid use disorder for patients on buprenorphine might be helpful. Right. 
patients don't like that because they want the freedom of having a prescription and not having to go to the clinic every day if they're not compliant. But for some people, that's maybe what is needed. Um, what is, um, tell us about a challenging or interesting case that you have come across. I think the challenging cases as a consultant on the phone are the cases where the relationship between the clinician and the patient is so central to what's going on and takes so much time and evolves over months and years. And I think what we can do is, is help to frame some of the questions and conversations that a clinician can go back and have with their patient. Um, and we know that it can take years of that clinician and patient working together to, you know, for the case to really evolve. Um, how about, are there any new drug trends that you're seeing? We can talk briefly about Fenibut, for example, something that we've seen more recently or gotten calls about, which is very similar to baclofen. Um, and it can, it's typically sold and as a nutritional supplement. So I've gotten calls from patients saying, hey, I, you know, am I a nutritionist or I saw this, an ad for this, uh, and I've been taking it. But now, you know, that I've been taking about it for about a week or, or a couple months, I think I'm addicted to it or I'm really worried about how I'm going to stop it. Um, and so because uh, there's a concern potentially in some individuals for things that are, are similar to like seizures or other concerns uh, for folks withdrawing from this type of substance, um, there are some case reports that have come out recently about uh, treating the withdrawal of baclofen low doses, um, typically something around 5 to 10 milligrams TID um, over the course of a, a week to two weeks or so to help people uh, with that withdrawal period, um, or if they're having more concerning symptoms going into the emergency department. But that's an example of something that, you know, isn't something that we all necessarily learned about in our clinical training, but something that's emerging um, on the market uh, as, as we're seeing it. And so oftentimes our callers are actually the ones who are telling us about, uh, about something new that's happening. Um, and then we get to kind of look up to see who else is experiencing this and how are others managing it. So are you getting phone calls um, from patients, not just from clinicians? No, just providers. Yeah, just clinicians. Yeah. All right. Let's go around the room and give us a, uh, a summary of uh, one line of what is the most rewarding part of your job. And Dr. Trevini DeFries. The most rewarding part is creating a community of practice for clinicians out there, especially those who are working in rural areas and helping to support them and let them know that they're not alone when they're taking care of patients with substance use disorder. And working on the warm line, the substance use warm line, we also have a community of practice. And it is so fun for me to ask my questions that callers ask and bring up to my colleagues who are on the line and who are also consultants on the line. So um, that, that's what makes it fun. And uh, Dr. Jesse Ristow, what about you? 
I'd have to say the same thing that Trevaney did. I absolutely the sense of community um, within our within our group. Um, for those of you that are just listening at home, as Trevaney was talking, we, you know, Mishka and I were both smiling because there really is that sense of community. Um, and we, I just, I feel, and I receive so much appreciation from our callers. Oftentimes, they're at the the end of their rope. They're feeling so overwhelmed. They just don't know what to do. Um, and so, most of the time, after we finish a call, the the caller just says, "Oh." I'm so grateful to have you all here. Every time I call, it just makes me feel so much better. Thank you so much for, for being here and providing this service. So that provides me a lot of, um, I just love that, that part of my job. So thank you. Great. And Dr. Mishka Turplin. Yeah, so I'm going to just echo and amplify what, what my you know wonderful colleagues have said. I, so in the way I would sort of phrase it from there's kind of the two parts. One is like we support and we find and support and learn so much from like really what I consider to be champions out there, you know, throughout the United States, really doing wonderful work and, and being able to reflect back to them, you know, like the, that what they're doing is, you know, coherent, consistent with evidence-based practice and often grounded, you know, in uh, in, in human rights and, and, and respect of uh, person dignity. And then on the inside, like, you know, internally, like it's great to have like the questions that we get asked, you know, are the questions that sometimes there's not a, you know, a clear answer to. And sometimes, you know, it takes, we have to go and I have to go and read. Um, I have to, I get to ask my colleagues and we're like a pretty heterogeneous group of clinicians with, um, you know, different backgrounds and training. We're not even all physicians. We have some like uh, pharmacologists and I've learned so much, you know, from, um, you know, other people's um, expertise um, internally and that sort of intellectual process of, you know, being able to be a physician and keep learning um, and be excited about learning, um, that's, you know, is, is, is really invaluable. That's great. And Brenda, tell us uh, your response and also remind our listeners of how um, clinicians can reach you. Thank you so much. Um, we really appreciate this opportunity. I think for me, um, as a public health professional, um, I mean, one, I'm working with an incredible team of people. Um, I look forward to my day. Um, so it's kind of a pinch me. Um, I'm dreaming job because I just work with such great people um, that are really um, vested in um, really offering um, support to their peers in, in the field. Um, and then on the, as a public health professional for me, um, you know, I went into this field because I really wanted to, um, to really tackle stigma and, and, um, and really address some of the systemic issues that we see around the country related to health equity. Um, I'm really proud that the NCCC is really part of, um, um, a part, providing a solution um, towards health, health equity and really ensuring that patients can get access to state-of-the-art uh, care um, by our, our um, by offering uh, by by us offering um, really support to clinicians in the field. Um, so it's been just it's a very meaningful job. Um, and and uh, to reach us or to learn more about us, we invite anyone to come visit our website. Um, you can come uh, visit www.nccc ucsf.edu. Um, we certainly thrive on, on donations. And so um, you're also able to um, provide donations through our website. 
Um, and uh, we just invite you to give us a call if you're a healthcare provider and uh, we can provide some support. Uh, we look forward to your calls. And certainly if you are um, someone that is looking to um, see how my, our services can support uh, your work in your communities, uh, feel free to reach out. Brenda, I had a thought. You know, physicians know to call Poison Center for complex poisoning. Do you want the NCCC to be another resource kind of like the Poison Center for physicians to call for advice? We would love to be. I mean, I think um, it's always hard to get the word out as a national service. Um, you know, I think we really appreciate these opportunities um, to be on uh, your podcast. Um, so that way more people can get to know who we are. We are featured in many of the federal guidelines that are available um, to uh, clinicians. Um, and so, yeah, we, we certainly uh, appreciate any um, support um, to, get, uh, to promote our services. That's great. I want to say thank you to Dr. Andrea Hunt um, for her question. Now that you asked it, Andrea, you'll have to add affinity to treat people who have a substance use disorder. And I wish you strength and passion in your career in medicine. Uh, I wouldn't want to do anything else. I've done it for 30 years and it continued to grow and learn as um, our experts taught us today. And to each of our team at NCCC, the National Clinical Consultation Center, thank you, Brenda Goldhammer, Dr. Trevini DeFries, Dr. Mishna Turplan, and Dr. Jesse Ristal. Thank you so much for your expertise, incredible service that you provide healthcare providers and thereby to patients. Addiction treatment can be complicated. It's not cookie-cutter medicine. And physicians across the country are very thankful for your expertise and services. Thank you. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to FAF, Families Against Fentanyl. Visit familiesagainstfentanyl.org and sign the petition to declare illegal fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Make drug dealers think twice and three times before peddling killer drugs. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davy Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths. <laughs> <laughs>